My name is Lou Huseman. I uh, have the privilege of serving here at this particular church, and it's been a real, uh, a real dream come true to see the relationships that have been developed in this city among the pastors and to see so many of them here today and to see the relationships that we share together um, and to think about how that is going to uh, go forth in the future. I, and I hope that today you've had your own vision stimulated, your own imagination stimulated to think about what it would look like for a city like ours to be made up not of churches particularly, not marked by churches, but by people who are following Jesus in every area of life. That wherever, whatever sphere they're called to, that they're living lives of Christ-likeness there and representing Jesus. Because I think that's what it's going to take, and that's why we're doing this, is to, for us as a, as a people, to have our own imaginations enlarged so that we might believe that Jesus has called us to be faithful and, and to think of together what that might look like. I'm very encouraged to see that, and I'm very encouraged to be part of a great team of pastors in the city who uh, really love it and are committed to it. And I know that many of you are being uh, are the recipients of that on a regular basis. So we're going to be led again in a few songs in worship, and then Dallas Willard's going to come and uh, lead us once again. So to properly exalt God, to understand who he is and what he's doing, puts us in a position to live the life that we're meant to live in his kingdom. And then Jesus and the Spirit of God comes to help us live that life. And we want to just say in the light of who God is and what he's doing, then everything that is held up to us in the scriptures, in the New Testament, both for us individually and for groups in which we come together as disciples, is a vivid and enticing possibility. Now, the shifting of the perception of, of ourselves and our lives that has to occur uh, is something that takes time. And that is what happens as one is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, that uh, status before God is one that allows all of the aspects of our personality, our mind, our will, our body, our soul, to make the adjustments that will lead us to be the people of God, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, leave the flesh to take care of itself, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus constantly. No need to worry about perfection. Uh, that'll take a while. But we can do a lot better. And that's where we need to put our focus. You know, the church has repeatedly gone through agonies over the issue of perfection. And I think that's something we just need to lay aside. Um, certainly Jesus said that we should be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. He was referring to a specific context there uh, in the, towards the end of Matthew chapter 5 uh, in which he's talking about how God treats people 
And I think that we can begin to uh, become like God in the way we treat people. That is the way of love. So now, as far as individually and in groups, uh, we are concerned with the life of the Spirit as it affects living in our cities and how we can bring the presence of the kingdom of God and of King Jesus into our cities as a, a vivid and real presence. You do want to remember that is something that has been done. It isn't like it has never been done. It has been done repeatedly, and we can do that again. There are different challenges that come to us when we're in a setting such as the Los Angeles area. We really haven't had anything of that size to deal with. But I don't think size is our problem. Uh, Our problem is how we understand who we are together with God where we are. And uh, if we understand that the call is to be the people of God throughout our communities, in all of our connections, and to confront whatever there is to be confronted, and we certainly have a lot of things like that today. I often have, especially public school teachers, talk to me about how difficult it is to be a Christian in their context when there's so much going against it. But I believe that we can find the way to do what needs to be done, that the power of the Holy Spirit will be with us. Uh, If we are persecuted for his sake, then the beatitude rests upon us, and we can accept that and live in it. So I was saying as I wound up last time that this is for our city now, wherever our city is. Uh, we can actually accomplish the kind of life we're talking about and bring it to other people. But we must intend to do it. And actually, that now begins to get into the problem that we have from within our church fellowships. Because the way the truth of the gospel is presented and how the Holy Spirit works in our lives and really all the essential truths about living with Jesus uh, are not well presented. And we're apt to have a version of the gospel that doesn't include that, and a version of salvation that doesn't include that. And those are the basic issues, I think, that we have to come to terms with theologically. And I want to be sure and leave plenty of time uh, this afternoon for us to get into the hard questions that may be uh, in your mind about these things. We have to intend to lead this kind of life in the spirit where the obvious outcome of that is obedience. We simply do the things that Jesus said. You might imagine a church or a local group that has a sign on the front of its building or perhaps on its letterhead, that says simply, we teach people to do everything that Jesus said. Now, how does that fit with you? I mean, we see all sorts of clever things said on the signs in front of churches, things like a diamond is a piece of coal that's stuck to its job. (laughs) Well, who be? And there's an important truth in there somewhere. 
But why not just say up front, we teach every, anyone who wishes to know, anyone who comes to Christ, we teach them in such a way that they routinely do everything that Jesus said. Could we do that? Or should we perhaps put on the front of the building, we don't teach people to do what Jesus said. So we have to intend it, and that's challenging. Another thing is we work with the people who are there. The church tends, I believe, in general, to pay far too much attention to people who aren't there. And if we're going to carry forward with life in the spirit so that it impacts our community, we need to work with the people who are there. And among the people who are there, there are some who are ready to go. And we need to identify them and begin to lead in some ways I shall try briefly to illustrate in a few minutes, uh, to lead them in a course of experience that they come out at the end of it and they do what Jesus said. And uh, just to... Uh, Continuing finishing the summary here, we need to do this with churches together, not just one church here and there, but the churches in the community need to be able to stand together and say, this is what we do. And in order for that to happen, it has to be the shared vision of the ministers. And so we need to be able uh, to minister to ministers. They are the people who have to lead, and they really are the only ones in a position to do something about our condition, whether we're talking about the general condition of our communities uh, or our churches. They have the responsibility. Now, I'm not just talking about people who are officially in the position of pastor or something of that sort, but in general, leaders, elders, if you wish, but many times the most influential people in a congregation have no official position whatsoever. It's just that people have identified them as people who are actually living the life that so often is only talked about. Now, all of this depends upon the internal life of the churches. It doesn't depend on anything outside of that. If you have individuals and groups that decide to do this, they can do it. It doesn't depend on the government, pro or con. See, that's one of the things we want to remember about our history as a people of Christ is that the government has never been able to do anything about us one way or the other. And in fact, the church has normally been at its best when it had the least support from outside, and even when it had the most severe opposition from the outside. Leading this kind of life of obedience in the spirit does not depend on the economy. It doesn't depend upon the educational system or the popular culture. And one of the things that I think 
is often overdone in our world today with people who are serious about their Christianity and want to do something is to spend too much time complaining about the opposition. Let the opposition be what it is. And of course it makes a difference. But it doesn't stop the church. The people of Christ are operating from a different kingdom. They, are, they have resources, they have guidance, they have connections that this world has nothing to do with. And uh, learning to live in that individually and in groups and relying upon that enables us to see that everything we need to do is laid out right there in the scriptures and has repeatedly emerged in history. But it does have to be taught by those of us who are in the people of Christ. It has to be taught, it has to be chosen by those who would identify with Christ independence upon God and the power of his word and of his spirit. So that's where what we do comes to matter. And if we are coming from a culture that has been strongly Christian, as we do here um, in the past, uh, we have to be sure that we attend to the details and don't just get caught up in slogans. Now we're coming up on the 4th of July, and we're going to hear a lot of people quote the verse from Second Chronicles 4.17. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear and forgive and I will heal their land. And we're likely to forthwith go forth and have a prayer meeting. It didn't just say that. It says, humble themselves. Now, what does that mean? That means they come off of their own devices and their own self-sufficiency and perhaps their great plans or great resources. They don't trust those. They humble themselves and pray. See, that's the next step. Once you've humbled yourself, you'll want to pray because you will know that you're going to need some help. Right? And one reason why people don't pray is they are still trusting themselves. They're still thinking in terms of what they can accomplish, of, of what their plans and their resources are. And frankly, our religious groups tend to just get caught up in that and to think in terms of all of that that they've been able to do and we lose touch with what really makes the only difference. Now, not just pray, but seek my face. Seek my face means to live before the presence, the manifest presence of God. Uh, you seek the back of his head. No, that's not the place. You seek his face, where he's looking right at you. You want to live there. They humble themselves, they pray, they seek to live before the face of God. And then turn from their wicked ways. They're not going to be able to do that until they've done the other things. 
And that's why we don't start with turning from our wicked ways. That's a hopeless project. We get all worked up about those and rant and carry on about them, and of course they're worthy of all kinds of ranting. Uh, but turning from our wicked ways means to live in the righteousness of the kingdom of God. It means to live in obedience to Christ. It means to live drawing our sustenance from the Holy Spirit and even from the presence of God the Father. Now when we do that, then we see things begin to move. And uh, in our city, we see individuals who are living with such clarity and power in their work and in their communities that people can no longer avoid the reality of the kingdom of God. It's not just a matter of speaking at people. It's a matter of living it. And very often, we don't say much. But you don't have to say much if your body and what you're doing loudly speaks of the presence of God. And then people realize the reality of what we might talk about, and they say it's not just talk. It's reality. That's where real change begins to come. And that has happened over and over in the history of the people of God. It's what happened coming out of the first uh, uh, century. It was a very small group of people um, standing in the world and in the kingdom of God in such a way that people had to come to grips with the reality of the life of Jesus in this world. Um, think about the Great Commission with me for just a moment. This is Matthew 28. And uh, Jesus is here talking to his little green berets, I guess you might call them. And he's giving them a charge as to what they're to do. And you know, it had to be something that left them in a state of shock. Because he's standing here saying to them, Now, as you go, that is the way to read that passage. It's not go, but as you go. And it's important, I think, to stress that. Because we're so apt to think of missionary work or evangelism as a special activity. And one of the things I want to make sure that I leave on your minds from today's talk is that bringing the gospel and the life of the kingdom to people is not a special activity. It is a normal activity because it simply comes out of the life that you're living. And getting this out of the category of special religious activity is one of the greatest challenges we face. So my life, as I live it with others of all kinds around me, I'm not putting on a performance. And I'm not thinking up some clever words that I might use to impress people 
and get them to do things they don't want to do. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just being who I am. I am a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who knows what's going on in this world and is in charge of it eventually, even if he allows some of it to happen that he doesn't want. But in the end, he's the one who is in charge. He is the Alpha and Omega. Right? So one of the ways that we can usefully witness in the sense of helping people come to know what they need to know is simply to say, well, you know, the greatest thing that is happening in the world today is what Jesus is doing. Don't you want to be a part of that? And here's how you might do that if you wanted to. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's not waiting on us. He's out front. And you may have noticed in the third chapter of Revelations where we have that picture of him knocking on the door and saying, won't you let me come in? The door is the door of the church that he's knocking on. And he is asking people in the church, wouldn't they like for him to come in and be a part of their lives and let them be a part of his? See, that call is beyond religion. Jesus is already out in the world. He's at your shop. He's at your school. If you're in the military or uh, the police or whatever your occupation is, he's already there. And we have to take him out of the picture of the sort of pathetic, impotent person There's an old song, standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus. Listen, you may not, because he's out in the real world. He's working with commerce and education and creativity in the arts. That's where he is. And I'm hoping that you had a little chance, as I suggested, uh, to write a version of Genesis 1:26 and Psalm 8, uh, where you list the things that you have dominion over. See, that's the challenge. Jesus is already out there, and he is working in that world, and now we are a part of that project. When you look at Matthew 28, you see it starts out from his position. Do you remember how it starts out there? It says, I have been given say over everything in heaven and in earth. Now tell me something that leaves out. Does that include what I'm involved in in my little finitude and my limitations? Yes. He has been given say over the philosophy department at the University of Southern California. Now, there's some people who don't know that. (laughs) But he didn't ask their permission. It's uh, very interesting to watch the people in the intellectual world try to come to grips with the actual past of the various 
intellectual and practical disciplines because when you go back to the root, you nearly always find Jesus and his people beginning and working on things which they normally will publicly confess. The record is there in history that they are servants of God and of Christ. So now watch that. I have been given say over everything in heaven and in earth. Are you with me on that? No? So now, that isn't just church? No. If you're going to claim the city, you have to acknowledge who is already the king. You start there. Now then, once that is in place, then here's what he tells his disciples to do. As you go, and I emphasize... That isn't necessarily saying to make a special project of going. You can do that. And certainly you see that in the book of Acts and elsewhere in in history. Some of the greatest of uh, the missionaries have been people like Judson and others who went to impossible places. And, you know, when they went out, often they took their coffins with them. That's the kind of approach they took to their life. Uh, and uh, God was already there, and they knew it, and that's why they went. Not because he wasn't there, but because he was there, and they went to work with him. Now, may I say, that is exactly the attitude that life in the Spirit brings to us everywhere we are. God is already there. So then, as you go, you help people come to grips with their life in God's world. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the King of the kings of the earth. As you go, make apprentices or students to Jesus. That's our call. And we do that by bringing them the information about the kingdom of God, about themselves, about what human history is about, and about Jesus and how he came into the world, and then, of course, how God is present here and the Spirit is there to work with people. Uh, And all of that fits together in the knowledge that we bring to people that makes them say, ah, the best thing I could do in my world is to become a disciple of Jesus. We don't necessarily try to get them to do anything. And I do encourage ministers especially to not spend a lot of time trying to get people to do things. Try to help them understand. Give them knowledge of what is the case. Simple knowledge like, hey, the kingdom of the heavens is at hand where you are. Now, Get over the idea that you have to run your life and recognize that the greatest opportunity you will ever have is to submit your kingdom to God's kingdom. To take what you have say over and put it under God's say. That's where it belongs, right? Now then... If you aren't careful, if you spend your time as a minister or a Christian trying to get people to do things, you'll wind up with a lot of people 
that show up every Sunday and say, get me to do something. You don't want to be in that position. You want to be in a position of helping people get started into a reality with which they are personally acquainted and growing and then help them understand more that they need to go on. And if we don't do it that way, we wind up with this problem of getting people to do things. And if we start on that basis, then we'll have to keep it up. We want people, you don't have to try to get them to do things. They know what to do and they want to do it. They may need some help and fellowship and support in doing it, but they want to do it. So all of the things that Jesus taught, they want to do it. They don't look at it and say, oh, this will ruin my life. This is awful. How can I live without anger and unforgiveness? You see, that's many people's strategy for getting along in life. So we want to say they want to do that. Uh, Normally, if I'm talking with someone who is uh, trying to deal with this issue of the existence of God, uh, before I go very far, I try to be sensitive about the uh, particular case, but before I go very far, I ask them, would you like for God to exist? Now, if they say no, I don't really think it's profitable to continue the discussion. Because I know that everything I bring up, they will find a way of deflecting it. And that's the way the human mind works. What it doesn't want to accept, it will find a way of rejecting. It's for those who are seeking God that a way is found. And you know the great verse in Jeremiah, if with all your heart you truly seek me, you will surely find me. There's no question. A person who's seeking God will find him. And then you can help them by presenting them with things that will enable them to find their way. And you listen and you try to respond to what they're doing. And Jesus simply says, I've been given charge over everything. Now as you go make disciples and then pull those people together as disciples in the presence of God. Uh, We have the language, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you know, that's not talking about water. That's talking about reality. The name is a reality. The name, biblically, stands for the reality that corresponds to it. So we immerse them, if you wish, in the reality of the Trinity. And now we're in a position to teach them in a way that they come to do everything that Jesus said. So how does that work? Well, he says, I'm with you always until the job is done. The job hasn't been done yet. The job is still going on right here. We're still trying to reach the world and bring them to the position of discipleship 
and that is the only solution that will solve the problems of the world. Now, again, I want to acknowledge there's an eschatological dimension to that. But I repeat, I'm not in charge of that. What I am in charge of is what I do to bring it to pass that people find their way into studenthood or apprenticeship to Jesus and then find a fellowship in which the Trinity is an active presence, which should be our church gatherings. And then, given all of that, teaching them to do the things that Jesus said. Now, I don't think that meant teach them they ought to. Uh, there's a good deal of that that goes on. I think it means teaching them in such a way that they do it. And now we have to talk about that uh, at some length in the rest of our time here today. But I just want to say, you want to note how effective that work is. I've just given you in a little different version what is called the Great Commission. As you go, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe, which doesn't mean to look at. To observe means to conform to, like observing the law. Did you observe the law? Yes, I observed the law. That doesn't mean you just looked at it. You did what it says. Right? And so now that teaching is what is given, and the effect of it is just something that you can't begin to explain in any human terms. These people had no qualifications whatsoever. You want to understand that the people Jesus was talking to there, though they had been with Jesus for two and a half, three years, and that was, that's better than most college courses you could get, uh, they were still very ordinary, unexceptional types of people. They really had no qualifications, and they're standing there, and Jesus is saying, now, Go make disciples of all kinds of people, every nation. That was a big breakout because now it was no longer an issue of Jewish people, children of Abraham. But now it had broken out and the Abrahamic covenant, which was in thee and in thy seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that's what's going to happen. And we're going to see uh, in a few days then Pentecost, where the effects of Babel, the confusion of tongues, where people couldn't understand one another, is reversed at Pentecost. And all of a sudden now, people can understand others who have a different language. God is reversing the process, and it turns out that people from all the surrounding countries, Jewish people, by and large, were now in Jerusalem, and the connection was being made in such a way that the message and the reality of the kingdom of God with Jesus at the center would be spread throughout the whole world. And the effect of that is just amazing. I hope you read uh, Bill Hull's books and uh, one of the recent ones, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the title right now, is, uh, is an, a very lovely summary of how things changed 
as the result of this impact of this message uh, on the Roman Empire and uh, around the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, in a two or three centuries, uh, you had uh, thousands upon thousands of people who were not Jewish, but they were converted to Christ. And then the practices of a pagan world that were often unbelievably uh, wicked and, and harmful had begun to be reversed simply because these people who knew Christ were living now in a different way with a different message. And what the first disciples actually accomplished as they carried out the Great Commission makes us realize that when you look at the Great Commission, what you're looking at is world revolution. World revolution. And uh, it's not by any means done yet, but when you look at the impact of that message, on especially the Mediterranean area, parts of the world, you realize that's what it's about. Now, people are actually doing the things that Jesus said, and they're building communities around that, and they're living lives of sacrificial love for one another. And that begins to change the whole, the whole uh, uh, way that the world realizes it ought to live. And even to this day, the principle of love and justice as it's presented in the Bible is the highest ethic that we see on earth. So I hope you just take that in now and then let me give you a couple of verses here from Acts chapter 1. Here the Jesus is preparing to leave them and he's walking with them and they are still asking, he's, he's still teaching about the kingdom of God, and they're still asking, are you going to restore government to the Jewish people and take it away from the Romans? And here's what he says, verse 7 of Acts 1, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now watch this. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, hang on there for just a moment. You see, they couldn't get past the idea that if you're going to have power, you have to have position. Okay, now hang, hang on with me a moment here. See, that's the human way. If you're going to have power, you have to have position. So now he's been talking about power, and they're thinking, okay, where's the position? And by that, they're thinking about a human arrangement. Okay, now, it's really important for us to understand that if we're going to deal with this issue of the church in the city. Because the church in the city, especially in current culture, is not going to operate from position. Now, there's a lot of that Attempted. It doesn't operate from position. The power of the church in the city operates directly from the kingdom of God. Now, if you want position, that's position. It's our position in the kingdom of God. We act with power, but not human power. 
repeatedly in the history of the church, when the church has become very influential, it has stopped thinking about kingdom power and tried to place its efficacy in human power. And it always is a disaster. It's a disaster. But if, uh, if people don't understand that there is a power that is accessible to them to act in, to live in, to speak from, then they will go for human power. Okay, so now what? Position? No position. Power? Yes. You see, when many people today hear someone talking about the church in the city, they immediately think in political terms. Right? And, of course, in our culture today, people are set to get up in arms immediately against that. And we have to be very clear in our own minds. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to be involved in politics or that we shouldn't vote or the church has gone through all of that in its history. No, no. You should vote as a Christian. If you are in a position to hold public office, you should do that as a Christian. And you should vote your convictions That's in our country. That's your right to vote your convictions. Doesn't matter where you get them. Don't don't believe this stuff about separation of church and state. It comes down and says, and I've had many people around me that think that actually there's a law against voting your Christian convictions. There is no such law, and indeed, the church the separation of church and state, where that's understood rightly, is designed to keep that from happening. Is designed to guarantee that you can vote your religious convictions. If you're in office, there are uh, legal issues that you have to come to, but still, you live your convictions. That's good. That's right. But that's not what the prosperity of Christ's people in the city amounts to. That is unofficial position, even if you're in official position. As a Christian, you're operating in a kingdom that is not dependent upon human arrangements. Now then, given that, notice just the rest of that verse 9 and uh, verse 8 in Acts 1. Uh, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay. Now that's what we're called to as Christ's people. That's what he has set us to do. But we don't depend upon human arrangements to carry that out. We derive our power from the truth we stand in in the kingdom of God and from the capacity of God and the Holy Spirit to bring to pass things that are good and intended by God uh, that are, are beyond human power. And you will see that in history. You will see things that have happened in American history and European history that simply were not manifestations of human power, but the manifestation of the presence of God.
Now, part of that is the power of the spoken words. Paul, in Romans 1, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Paul watches practice, and you see, he just showed up and talked. That's all he did. He didn't send out an advanced troop or anything. Uh, He would go where people were in Philippi. There was a place down by the river, apparently, where women gathered to pray, and that's where he went. And what did he do when he got there? He just told them about Jesus. Now, for him, that was a very powerful message because it included the resurrection and the future of the world as Jesus was going to play a part in it, including judgment. Uh, And so it was a very powerful message. But notice, it was only the power of the words that he was counting on. Now, he reasoned. In other cases, he would go into the synagogues. And he would reason from Scripture where that was relevant and where it was relevant to reason from pagan and Greek history, like in Lystra and Athens. He would reason from that. But his confidence was merely in the presence of God with the words that he spoke. I don't have time to develop that, but if you look at his letters where he's talking about what happened, for example, in Thessalonica, you'll see that it was the evidence of the power of the spoken word that brought people to a knowledge of God. And then you you didn't have to try to get them to do anything. Rather, they were saying to you, what shall we do? Because of the power of the spoken words. Now, that power is precisely a power that does not come from position. There's no governed or other force back of it. You simply speak it, and you watch the effects of life in the Spirit in the word that you speak. That's why speaking is so important for us. Witnessing is not a matter of trying to get people to do things. Don't confuse witnessing with what is today called soul winning. Witnessing is bringing people to know things. That's what witnessing is. That's why the word is set up around wit. Wit is an old German term that refers to knowing. To witness is to bring people to know things by sharing what you know. And in a simple, straightforward presentation within our lives, as we go, we bring knowledge. And then the effect of that is disciples. Now I have to talk to you a little bit about that. I started this morning by explaining uh, what a disciple is. And uh, I hope that you might remember that a disciple is someone uh, who is with another person learning to be like them. And now a disciple of Jesus is someone who is with Jesus. Undoubtedly, in many cases, that means being with his people, right? And they are learning to be like him by being with him. And now remember that that means whole life, 
I am learning to be like Jesus wherever I am. The place of discipleship is wherever I am, with whomever I am. Now then, bringing knowledge of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ in that kingdom of what he's doing, bringing that knowledge with the accompanying spirit working with the word makes people say, I must be a disciple of Jesus. Now, now then, I've, I've got to try to drive something home here. In our religious culture, we have moved away from that. And so much in American religious culture, where, there, where people are very serious in trying to involve people in the life of God, uh, we have replaced that with getting them to assent to something that will secure forgiveness of sins. But that does not make a disciple. And so proceeding on that principle is what explains how we now have multitudes of Christians who are not disciples. Now let me add, most of them have never been given an opportunity to become a disciple. How many meetings have you been in where people were invited to become disciples? See, that's not a part of our regular church routine. I'm not saying it should, because how this is to be handled requires a lot of wisdom. And I don't think that people should be given invitations all the time to everything. I think that's a part of a culture that says we have to get people to do things. We want people to do good things without having to be wrangled into doing it. We want them to see what is good and recognize it and say, this is for me. The pattern is Pentecost. Peter preaches. When he gets done, he doesn't give an invitation. The people are asking him, what should we do? That's where we want people. What should we do? See, imagine a testimony of life and word so powerful that people come and say, what shall we do? Now, in our church history, we used to believe in something called conviction of sin. That was the realization, I got to do something. I got to deal with this. But psychology, uh, teachings of various kinds have brought people to the place to where you don't hear much about conviction of sin. Don't put your hand up, but just ask yourself how many people that you know personally of that are suffering or have suffered from conviction of sin. Now, actually, many of them might have been, but they've been taught in such a way that they don't recognize it. You know, the word sin has kind of passed out of our vocabulary. And certainly in our academic settings, we don't use that anymore. 
right? It doesn't mean anything. It means maybe a guilt complex or something of that sort. But sin is the disruption of life as it should be, the ruination of personality, the wreck of the soul, and the destruction of society. And righteousness is what brings us back into line with what is good and right. But today, it's very difficult to find a clear presentation of those two alternatives in such a way that a person might be able to make a clear decision concerning them. And so very often our invitations are merely, do you, have a, do you feel a need? Well, for goodness sakes, do I feel a need? I got all the kinds of needs I feel. And people are loaded with needs they feel. But is that a basis for becoming a disciple of Jesus? Not usually. That isn't what is in the offing. And we need to ask ourselves, do we give people occasions to become disciples? Now, in order to do that, we'd have to lay a foundation in teaching, try to help people understand what it means. That would bring us back to the topic that we've touched upon several times. What is the gospel? Is it about just forgiveness of sins, or is it about life now? Is life now in Christ presented in such a way that people could say reasonably, certainly under the influence of the Spirit, but they could say, I have to have this. And I'm willing to become a disciple of Jesus in order to have it. To become a disciple, you have to make a decision. Is there such a thing as discipleship evangelism that prepares people to make a decision to become a disciple? You don't drift into it any more than you drift into becoming a student at a university. You have to decide to do something, and you have to make certain arrangements, and then you are in a status of student. And that's exactly how it works with Christ. And what I'm urging on you now, just in this particular part of the discussion, do we put people in a position to make decisions to be disciples. I'm not talking about public invitations. That might be something that could be done depending on how it was handled. But very often, a person who actually decides to be a disciple does that in solitude when they're alone or maybe talking with one or two friends. Okay, now let's... Pull that together now and remind ourselves, what, what, what have you decided if you have decided to become a disciple? You've decided to learn from Jesus how to live your life as he would live your life if he were you. Okay? Now, I'm really hoping that that will be very clear because discipleship is the key to everything in the spiritual life. It's the key. As I say in the notes here, 
Discipleship is a status, just like being a student at Long Beach State University. That's a status. Now, in the status of disciple, then spiritual formation occurs. Discipleship is a status. It is you come there by a decision. It needs to be a decision based on an understanding of what it means, what the gospel is, and so on. And then as you come into that status, you begin a process of transformation. Now, if it's too crude, forgive the illustration, but for example, you might decide to learn algebra. And you might, on the basis of that, thinking that that was very important, not many people in our culture think that, it's unfortunate, um, but you might think that that was important, and you might go to uh, Esther's class, and she would enroll you, and you would be a disciple of Esther in algebra. Right? Now then, as you did that, you would do certain things, perhaps read a few pages in a book, uh, attempt some exercises, and then you would come to her as your teacher, and she would put you through a process. And long short, it would mean that you go through that process and you come out at the end now, and you are able to work algebraic problems without a computer. Now, okay, let's carry it over as carefully as possible here. I have heard about a life in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God in action. I've heard about a person living their lives in such a way that the kingdom of God, God in action, is beside them in their thinking, in their acting, and all that they're doing. Okay. And so we have Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means make the most important thing you're seeking a life of interactive relationship with God. That's what that means. God wants us to have that. The Luke version says, Do not be afraid, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not trying to hold back. This picture of God is sort of trying to hold the door and not let anybody in. It's totally mistaken. He's trying to get everyone into heaven that he can. He's not trying to keep people out. Well, again, you may need to think about that, but do think about it. He's not standing there, his foot against the door, so don't let that one in. He's trying to get people in. And he tells us, now seek first the kingdom of God and his kind of righteousness, and everything else you need will be added to that one thing. Seeking and finding the kingdom of God. Now, imagine that our churches are full of people like this. They're disciples. What do you think the life of the church would look like if that were true? 
Well, for one thing, nearly all of the troubles that churches would have would simply not be there. Take such a thing as giving and just think about the deplorable rate of giving in our churches. I'm sure that's not true of you. I really am. Because I know you're a different group. That's why if that weren't true, you wouldn't be here today. Right? But the average giving for Christians in our churches is something around 2, 2.5% at most of their income. No wonder that churches are constantly begging. And you know, I, I do listen to a good bit of I, stuff on television from ministries. It's just begging. Why is that? Well, it's because our Christians are not disciples. See, the, the, the first two main things that goes on once you enter the kingdom of God as a disciple is giving and prayer. Those two things. And you give because you get to participate in the kingdom. You know, you probably know that passage in what is it, Second Corinthians uh, nine or eight, where Paul is talking about the Macedonians and how they give gave beyond anything they really could, and he has that statement there: God loves a hilarious giver. Cheerful is a little weak. That was a hilarious giver. Well, what's? It's the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing. See, that's the disciples' approach, and that's totally different because they know now that they are participating in a kingdom, where, as Paul says, "My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory." So now imagine our churches full of disciples and disciples making disciples instead of Christians as now understood. And once you imagine that, then you can ask the question, is this what we intend? Is it our intention to have our church full of disciples? And have we actually set up our programs in such a way that that would happen? Is that what we are intending to bring about? And if we were, would our organizations be set up the way they are? See. Now, intention is crucial. If we don't intend it, it's not going to happen. You don't drift into discipleship. I think some people, through a course of events, wind up as disciples without a very clear process, and I don't want to get sticky about the terminology or the legalism of it all. It's a different realm. But do we present the kingdom of God, the message of salvation in that context, so that it applies to real life in such a way that people would look at that and say, I am going to be a disciple of Jesus. 
Okay, now, if we're going to have the church in the city, that is how we get it. If we're going to do that, then we have to preach a gospel that naturally leads people into the status of disciple. Now, forgive me for going so slowly here and emphasizing, but this is the key to everything. If you're going to talk about life in the Spirit, it isn't going to be a life that has just a few hoopy-doos in it and uh, some nice experiences. It's going to be a life that is supported by the action of the Spirit in what we, everything that we do. That's life in the Spirit. And life in the Spirit reaches down to all of the parts of our life, especially to our vocation, and then manifests itself in our work and in our communities. And that transforms life in the city. Well, I give here three areas of focus uh, in your notes. Three areas of focus in being a disciple. Uh, separate these three things out, not because they're actually separable in life, but just for the purpose of emphasis. Three areas of focus in being a disciple. And the first are Jesus' explicit teachings. So now in our assemblies, we have disciples, and we are teaching the particular things that Jesus taught in this sense, that we're enabling people to actually become a part of that and live out the things that he taught. Just You can go to many places in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, love, contrasted with being able to speak wonderfully. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am become a racket. Just a noise. Though I have the gift of prophecy and have all knowledge, have all faith so that I could move mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. Give my body to be burned. Give all of my goods away. Profits me nothing. Love suffers long. You know, isn't it amazing that the first thing that shows up on the list is patience? See, now we have to think that through and say, where did that come from? What is patience? See, that's, that's how our teaching would go. And all of the other things that are taught by Jesus, we look at it and we say, okay, those are the explicit teachings. And then secondly, on your list there, the details of ordinary life in home, at work, in community. Well, okay. I mean, if you're going to be patient, you've got to do that somewhere. Maybe we could start at home. So now, of course, also here, you have uh, the demands of work. Fundraising, planning, getting loans projecting, purchasing, and all that sort of thing. You're running a business of some sort. Now, we have to learn how to do that as Jesus would do it. See? 
remember, a disciple of Jesus is someone who is learning from him how to lead their life as he would lead their life if he were they. Okay, so now here we are running our taco stand or our bank or whatever it is. That we learn to do as a disciple of Jesus. And then the final thing I've listed there, number three, is learning how to act in the power of God. You've got to have all of those. You can't pick and choose between them. I repeat, I didn't break them out in three parts because they are actually separable. They're not. They come together. But for purposes of understanding, you see, we have to learn how to carry through with our action in expectation that the power of God will come into place to accomplish what we can't accomplish. Now, that, that is a special challenge for uh, many of us in many situations because you can't always see that happening right beside you when it's happening. And most of the time, we see the power of God kick in in the rearview mirror. And we have to have faith that he's there and proceed on that, because that's a part of our growing up into maturity as friends of Jesus, running his world. So we learn how to do that. And in conjunction with our fellowship of friends, our communications with God, our understanding of the Scripture, we find ourselves often stepping out to accomplish something good in our lives without being able to see the power of God making it happen. But when we look back, we can see it. And we say in that good old biblical term, Ebenezer, hitherto hath the Lord led us. God is interested in what is in our heart. And he puts us to the test of trusting him beyond what we can see. Because that is a way of revealing where our heart actually is. So you have those three dimensions, and uh, we break them out just so we can talk about them. And now uh, I want to just make a few remarks here in concluding. Uh, one is, in our churches, let's don't announce the revolution. Don't say, we're all going to be disciples, and we're all going to be in spiritual formation and so forth and so it's not that isn't the way it works preach teach live the message of life in the kingdom of god that's in the scripture you don't have to get a new program up for it just teach teach the parables of jesus teach the way he taught in the manner he taught it be gentle let people come to it let them be the ones who say, you know, I really want to know how to do this. And I'm prepared to become a disciple of Jesus and live my life in the kingdom of God. You don't run over people with this sort of thing. 
I'm firmly convinced that you should always assume that people have good hearts, even if they don't. And I think that that's a part of what is included in the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. You say, well, but sometimes they don't. That's right, they don't. But you're far better off to assume that they do. And trust God to handle that. And so in our churches, the best people on earth, I'm convinced, are in our churches. And among the best people on earth are the leaders. And they mean to do what is good and what is right. And so we come and we speak the truth, and we speak the truth in love. We don't lay condemnation on people because they're not disciples and so on. We just teach gently and allow the sense of the goodness of discipleship in the kingdom of God to grow upon them. Above all, with ministers, we want, as I said this morning, to minister to ministers in depth. Many times the folk in our congregations don't understand what the minister's life is like. And there needs to be great sympathy and understanding for those who are attempting to lead. I don't think criticism uh, does much good and know that it it does much harm uh, if it is not given in a spirit of love and understanding and hopefulness with prayer, uh, and then it can be of some help. Now then, as we move into that, then what I call the true ecumenicism begins to emerge. Because trying to build a church in the city runs into the barriers of tradition and denominationalism and a whole lot of history. And you cannot hit that head on and get anywhere with it. So here's the true ecumenicism. The true ecumenicism is obedience to Christ. And if you have people who are living as disciples and learning to obey Christ, you will see them come together in obedience. And when they meet one another, they will know one another. And their differences of tradition and so on will not separate them. Because they will say, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And we are learning to live in his kingdom with one another in this world. And whatever the differences of denominations and so on mean in a city like Long Beach, that will be overcome by people who are devoted to learning to live, 1 Corinthians 13, Matthew 5, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. That is the true ecumenicism, and it will defeat all of the divisions and sometimes the hostility and the anger that is there between Christians because they're of different kinds. And so when you have people of different denominations working in the same office or factory or something of that sort, they will be able to identify one another and live together with one another in their context as people who are the disciples of Jesus Christ. And they will be able to stand together in a way that will correct all of the sinful 
habits, often hatred, anger in human beings, and show a different way of life that can draw people into the kingdom of God and transform the context, if it's the city or whatever it is, the context of human life. And that's what we're looking for. The vocation is all important. What is your vocation? Who are the Christians that are with you in that vocation? Uh, it may be something as technical as health care. Well, how does that work at a hospital or in a division of the city that's concerned with that? Christians need to come together with transformed lives under the ministry of the Holy Spirit that enables them to exercise the power of the kingdom of God in solving the issues of vocation. We have repeated problems with police. Do you imagine if, we, there, if there had been people who were disciples of Jesus Christ that we would have seen what we saw in the Rodney King case. But see, very often we don't even put that together. We think somehow, well, if you're a policeman, you can't be like that. Yes, you can be like Christ. And if you are like Christ, there's a lot of stuff you're not going to do just because you got so mad at someone you wanted to beat their head off. That won't happen. our educational system. Well, I don't have time to go on and on. Just any of these contexts, any of these contexts where you have people that are identifiable to one another because of their obedience to Christ in the kingdom. And they're learning this from Jesus Christ and his people under the administration of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have a transformed world. A transformed world. And I mean, I can only mention, I mean, just if you think about what that would do to international relations, to all of the settings in which people con uh, conflict and hurt one another, and then that multiplies. So you have something that will stop that process in the embodied personalities of disciples of Jesus Christ, not just in church, but everywhere in ordinary life. Well, I have run out of time, and all I can do, I think, is just say...